you have a Bible and you'd like to follow it along in the reading of God's Word, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 14. We come to verses 31 through 35. Continuing to read through the book of Proverbs, we come to Proverbs 14, verses 31 through 35. This is God's word. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we would receive a heart of understanding, which comes from you as you are pleased to uh, transform us into the image and likeness of Christ in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Father, you've dealt with us, the needy, so generously in such kindness and tenderness. And for this, we give you thanks and ask even now that you would deal with us for we are in need, Lord, in need of the light of your word, in need of hearts to receive your word, in need of that new creation strength to believe and abound in hope and love and all the excellencies that Christ alone can impart. And so we pray, Father, that you would do these things, even now as we humbly attend your word, that you would strengthen the work of your hands, which you will not forsake. And we give you thanks for this. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Continuing in the Shorter Catechism, the questions are on the white insert if you still have that if not you can turn to the back of the hymnal and find them on pages 973 and 974 continuing our time in the ninth commandment which i'll read from exodus chapter 20 verse 16 lend your attention this is god's word you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor thus ends god's word and then we'll take up uh, question 77 and 78 what is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requireth the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. And question 78, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Man cannot live in the dark. I had a humorous exchange with this. It was almost something straight from a sitcom as I was trying to make my way 
through a room in the pitch dark, I stepped on one of the children's toys. It was a top, and it brought me low. <laughs> and I was reminded how necessary the light is. If the light had been present, the obstacle would have been known. It would have been easy to avoid. Man cannot live in the dark. The truth as the light is a regular image in Scripture. You can think about all of the times God's word is set forth as a light, as a lamp. Truth is one of the many rich extensions of the image of light. God is light. In him there is no darkness, no none at all. In part, that is to emphasize the truth of God. I think John makes the point of saying that uh, we cannot walk in darkness if we claim that our fellowship with, uh, is with him. Uh, and as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so there the image is very clear that as we live our lives in the light of the truth, we can expect that it will make known further our need for forgiveness, and it will make known further the forgiveness that he supplies the light is necessary. The light is good. From the very beginning, this was plain, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So necessary was light that God spoke it first. And this is the image that structures our understanding of truth and our understanding of how important truth is, how necessary truth is, how precious truth is, how life-giving truth is. And so we consider this evening our intense need for truth and how our God obligates us to live in accord with truth. If last week, or I believe it was two weeks ago, we considered the ninth commandment with particular reference to false witness and slander, uh, tonight we consider it more broadly in our commitment to truth as people of the true and living God, as people who delight to have a God who is true in the richest and fullest sense of that, and who have seen the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who have been freed by the truth, as Christ says, the truth shall set you free, and the gospel of truth being the means of our salvation. It is no slight need that we have for the truth. And so let's consider under three headings this evening, this relationship to truth. First is we are called to speak the truth. Second, we are called to speak the truth in love. And third is a question. Are we always called to speak the truth? So first, we're called to speak the truth. Westminster 77, which we read, the ninth commandment requires the promoting of truth between man and man. God commands everyone to tell the truth to one another. This is a moral obligation. It's written upon the hearts of every single person. They are obligated to tell the truth to their neighbor. In the most basic sense, to speak to one another in truth, to deal with one another honestly. You can hear from the catechism, this is a universal obligation. We owe the truth, whatever it may be, to all people with whomever we speak and have dealings. 
It doesn't seem to me to be an overstatement to say there can be no human society, no human community, unless truth is a basic commitment. As we said, man cannot live in the dark. Zechariah 8.16 reads, These are the things you shall do. Every man is to speak the truth to his neighbor. And then verse 17 goes on to say that the Lord hates falsehood. So one simple way that we love our neighbors is by dealing with them in truth. By speaking the truth to them. By dealing with them in honesty. I say simple meaning simple in principle. Because in practice it does seem more difficult, doesn't it? I think practically speaking, this does have an effect on a number of ways that we deal with our neighbor. This ought to make us much slower to speak on this principle of being obligated to speak the truth. I think any sort of evaluation of our speech via this criteria, am I speaking the truth? Is this true? Do I know that this is true? Do I believe that this is true? I think even just that simple evaluation of our speech would probably reduce the amount that we talk, wouldn't it? So it makes us much slower to speak and quicker to listen because oftentimes the truth corrects what other people say. And so you have to hear what other people say. The obligation to speak the truth in general, makes less speech the far safer position for us. And an indispensable posture of listening is necessary if we're to speak the truth out of an earnest concern for our neighbor. This makes us people of fewer words, of careful speech, and of careful thought when it comes to the things that we say. This makes a lot of sense, given what Scripture says about the power of words, about the power of the tongue, about the wisdom that comes with being slow to speak, being quick to listen, how there is in the multitude of words no slight transgression, as it were. This will show us our need for virtue in the execution of our speech, doesn't it? We're going to require prudence to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. We're going to require courage. Oftentimes what we have to say is going to be hard. It might not be popular. It might come at cost. Thus, courage is necessary. And perhaps above all, the beautiful virtue of love. If truth is going to be distributed, not as a way to destroy, to dominate, to win an argument, but rather as a means to bring into the light where life can transact. If we're obligated to tell the truth to all people, how much more to our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's the very point that Paul makes when he cites Zechariah 8.16 and Ephesians 4.25, when he writes, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul there grounds our obligation to deal with one another in the truth uniquely in our union 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one body. We are knit together in one spirit. We're members of one another. And our bonds, in no slight way, are the bonds of truth. Are they not? The spirit of truth knits us together. We find union with the one who is the truth. We are all beholden to the truth of God, eagerly desiring to be conformed to it, eagerly desiring to see each other conformed to it, because we know therein is our corporate blessedness, growing up together into full maturity. And so it's no wonder that Paul says, speak the truth to one another, for you are members of one another. We have further motivation from that, just from the simple absurdity and darkness of lying to yourself. He says you would withhold the truth from one another the same way that you would withhold the truth from yourself. That is to say, at great danger, imperiling your very soul, as it were. It's somewhat of a comical and ridiculous picture. Imagine your arm trying to keep your leg in the dark. Imagine your toes conspiring against your ears. It's ridiculous. The darker version of this comes when we reflect upon the fact that self-deception is some of the deepest deception that's humanly possible, and he would keep us from that. For in self-deception, darkness itself seems to become light. Destruction seems to be salvation. There's a lostness there that is deep indeed, and Paul warns us from this. Contrarily, he says that our well-being as the body of Christ is bound up with speaking the truth to one another. But we grow by the truth. We're set free by the truth. We know that the truth is from God, and thus it is from our Lord. And so when we speak the truth, we honor our Lord, the author and the source of all truth, the one who is true through and through, the one who hates falsehood again and again and again set forth in Scripture. We honor one another in speaking the truth. I don't know if you've ever been lied to point blank. There's something remarkably humiliating about it. You feel disrespected. Did I don't deserve the truth? Like you, you think I'm less than human that you would so blatantly lie to me like that? There is no small slight in being lied to. And so we honor one another as we tell the truth to one another. We forsake the devil who is a liar, who is lie through and through, who lies out of his own nature, who enslaved us by that first lie and is eager to see us enslaved in all sorts of lies. And so we forsake him when we tell the truth. But above all, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke the truth constantly in his ministry. When it was unpopular, when followers were eager to hear it, in all that he did, he spoke the truth. It's a remarkable consideration that every word that he uttered was absolutely true, good, and fitting. The Lord Jesus Christ has the truth and the light whom we image as we're speaking the truth to one another as God gives it to us in his word, but also as he grants it to us in his 
come in grace. We can recall the many passages in Scripture which extol the value of truth. And thus we can know that we're in good company and on safe ground as we're earnestly laboring to know the truth and to speak the truth. But if truth is commended, we're also reminded that our hearts are incredibly wicked and can take even good gifts and use them to wrong ends. And so, second, we consider that we're called to speak the truth in love. This is exactly what Paul says earlier in Ephesians. He says, speak the truth in love. And the larger catechism seizes upon that and other places in Scripture to warn us that while truthfulness itself is commended, truth can also be abused. We've considered this before, that the surgeon's scalpel can give life and take life, depending on how it's used. So the larger catechism tells us that the ninth commandment forbids speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting the truth to a wrong meaning. So it gives us three abuses there that are all sort of flushing out what it means when Paul says speak the truth in love, which raises the question, well, what would it look like not to speak the truth in love? What would it look like to speak the truth in cruelty? The larger catechism elaborates. We abuse the truth. If we speak the truth unseasonably, Proverbs 29, 11, which the larger catechism cites, a fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps it in till afterwards. Oftentimes we can think that the truth of a thing is its own justification and the only justification that we need for saying it. But that's not what the larger would have us consider. The truth of the matter is only part of the consideration. Love compels us to ask, is this a good time to say it? In what manner would it be best said? Perhaps even, is there one from whom this might be best received. Now, make no mistake, we can seize upon these considerations as excuses not to speak the truth, but handled as Scripture commends them, they simply invite reflection on the heart which is speaking the truth. Whether it's really done in an earnest desire for this person's good, or whether it's just a thin veil for our own malice. This calls for the heart of wisdom. Have you ever spoken the truth unseasonably? You have. <laughs> we all have. This is, I think, one of the hardest considerations when it comes to what God calls us to do with the truth. I'm sure you can think of any number of times where you've Put your foot in your mouth, as it were. And maybe you said something true, but it certainly wasn't done in a way that was seemly or good. Johannes Voss uses the illustration that resonated with me of uh, trying to share the gospel with a man rushing at an airport to try and catch his flight. 
That is not the way to love that man in that situation. The way that you love that man is by getting out of his way. May God be praised. (laughs) The seasonableness of truth invites us to ask, not only is this true, but is this coming from a heart that would see the truth used in a way that leads to life? The next abuse that the larger attunes us to is speaking the truth maliciously to a wrong end. We can actually use the truth to try and do harm sometimes, can't we? It's not just that it wasn't ideal in terms of its speaking, but it was actually intended Pretend you don't like that man and you use the sharing of the gospel with him to actually keep him from getting to his flight. Shame on you. Just get out of his way. The larger catechism cites 1 Samuel 22 and Doeg's use of the truth about what happened at Nob. I don't know if you remember this story. Doeg had witnessed David and the priest at Nob receiving help from the priest, and Saul gathers his servants around and is indignant that anyone in his kingdom would help David. And Doag, seeing an opportunity to advance himself, uses the truth of what he saw to do just that. Incidentally, ends the life of the priest. I think we're particularly in danger of this as we confront one another in sin. That seems to be a primary area where we're vulnerable in this way, where our sinful hearts seize upon someone else's stumbling as a way to shore up our self-righteousness, to assure ourselves that, yes, I always suspected that I was better than you, and now I will flaunt it by reminding you of How low you've fallen. Too often, confronting in sin can become a crusade where malice and cruelty is given vent under the thin veneer of an earnest pursuit of truth. The Lord knows the heart on these matters, and we can rejoice in that, but we can also, with sobriety, know that if we're called to confront one another in sin, that we stand before the Lord, known in the deepest places of our heart. And so it's no wonder that we go to the Lord in earnest prayer in those situations, not just for the brother, but for our own sinful hearts, which would make a mess of such situations. That's what Paul instructs us in in Galatians 6.1, which we've had opportunity to consider. The one doing the retrieving from sin is in just as much danger as the one who is caught in sin, for they're vulnerable there to spiritual pride, they're vulnerable there to malice and cruelty, and they're in danger of doing more damage, driving the one who's been ensnared further away and not bringing them closer to the fold, which is what the good shepherd would have. Can you feel our weakness in this area? Can you feel our vulnerability in this area? Can you feel our great need for the spirit of truth and wisdom 
in this area. It's a wonder that Christ does invite us to seek this very wisdom, this wisdom that comes down from above, which is peaceable and gentle and pure. And he's speaking there of the same wisdom that we see everywhere on display in his ministry, such that even when he was speaking truth that he knew was hardening his opponents, wonderfully, even that wasn't tinged with sinful anger, sinful cruelty. I'm not sure how that transpires, quite frankly, but we can be sure that it did because he sinned in nothing that he did, such that his silence was bathed in righteousness, his speaking was bathed in righteousness, his gentle words were bathed in righteousness, his harsh words were bathed in righteousness. How wonderful is that, King? I pray that you can be encouraged for it is that righteousness which covers us, beloved. But it is also that spirit of wisdom which he delights to give us and lead us in as we seek it from him. The final abuse is the wielding of truth in such a way that intentionally misleads. Here the standard cite Matthew 26 and the false witnesses against Christ who use what Christ says but in a way that so very clearly perverts what Christ said. In other words, this is another iteration of malice finding an occasion to abuse the truth. But here we see our tendency to take words out of context. Immediately, we should be attuned to our sound bit culture. Because it's not just when we do this, trying to take words out of context. It's when we're on the receiving end of this as well. So you and all of your exposures to this sound bit media economy that we live in do well to pause and say, I wonder if that's taken out of context. I wonder if this person's agenda isn't being furthered by this little snippet of sound that's being shoved down my throat and which I'm being baited into pronouncing upon with absolutely no information whatsoever. This is forbidden us by the sobriety that comes to us from wisdom, but also by the plain commandment of God. Beloved, we're called to speak the truth in love, and we're just as mindful of the heart's intention concerning our speech and our listening as we are with the speech itself. But this raises one last question. Is deception ever permissible? Another way to phrase this is, do we owe everyone the truth? This isn't an easy homiletical point to make. It turns more into a lecture at this point. But here we go. <laughs> You'll find in the Reformed reflections on our moral responsibility, a question framed in the light of the Ninth Commandment, which is, must we always speak the truth? Is deception ever acceptable? You can put the question different ways, but essentially it's asking, is it always wrong to deceive? This isn't just a needless ethical controversy, or at least it, not, it ought not to be approached that way. I think we can do that and we're in danger of just asking hard questions for hard questions' sake. But we're really trying to get at the heart of the matter with asking this question. It's an honest question asking, first, there are 
several episodes in Scripture which seem to indicate that deception was used and that lawfully. But the second question is also from Christians behaving in difficult situations throughout history where deception wasn't just lawful but seemed necessary. And this heading, this consideration sits under the heading of are there such things as lies of necessity? Now, we're talk, not talking about lies of convenience here. We're not talking about little white lies here. We're talking about lies of necessity. So it's possible that the larger catechism actually raises this question when it states that the ninth commandment forbids speaking the truth unseasonably or to the wrong end. So it's possible that it's raised there, but it's interesting that the catechism doesn't directly address this. So the scripture cites that episode in 1 Samuel 22, where Doeg uses the truth to advance himself, get these priests destroyed. But that raises the question, what should he have done there? Now, he knew what happened there. Saul asks generally concerning David and his whereabouts. Doeg knew about David and his whereabouts. So hypothetically, what should he have done? Was he morally obligated to tell Saul? Now, on this general question, not on that particular interpretive issue, which I think highlights the question, there's disagreement within the Reformed tradition. You should know that, and that's good. And the basic positions are, one, sometimes the highest obligation of love necessitates deception. So that's one position. Sometimes the higher obligation of love for neighbor actually makes deception necessary. So our obligation to love is a higher priority than our obligation to truth. That's how the thinking goes there. The other end of the spectrum is that the obligation to tell the truth is inviolable. And our telling the truth is how we trust God's sovereignty. So you can see the two positions answering this question. Charles Hodge argues for position one. He appeals to the actions of Rahab and judges who hid the spies. He appeals to the action of the Hebrew midwives. He says that the high obligation of love and preserving life made deception necessary in those moments. Mark Jones similarly writes, love dictates the lawfulness of an action. Lying may be allowed only when we show love to our neighbor. That is, we lie for our neighbor's benefit, specifically countering wickedness in dire circumstances. You hear that? So in addition to the midwives and Rahab, Mark Jones also cites the actions of Christians during World War II, hiding Jewish refugees from certain doom. So again, it's important to note what they're not saying. They're not saying lie whenever you think it best or convenient. Jones makes that careful qualification. He says that they're countering wickedness in dire circumstances. 
and that's when deception is okay. Uh, G.I. Williamson and Johannes Voss op- offer a slightly different position on this. And they say that concealing the truth is different from lying. That it's okay for us to conceal the truth, but it's never okay to outright lie. Doeg should have said nothing. And he was at liberty to do so in his conscience. Voss highlights the moral duty to conceal military plans from an enemy army. It's not lying, it's concealing. And sometimes that's necessary, he argues. The other position is a simple and absolute commitment to truth in all circumstances as an exercise of trust in the sovereignty of God. John Fesco uh, briefly argues that scripture is silence. Scripture is silent on the moral quality of the actions of the midwives and Rahab. It doesn't specifically say it's right. In fact, the closest thing we do have to a moral reflection on Rahab's actions come from Hebrews 11, and it doesn't profile her deception. It profiles her faith and her friendly welcome of the spies. So Reverend Fresco asks us if in these so-called lies of necessity, we aren't just trusting ourselves and our own resources when we resort to deception. He says, quote, I believe the so-called lie of necessity carries with it the presupposition that God always wants us to remain safe. Though this is perfectly understandable, it's unbiblical. So what do we say? How do we bring some soul benefit from this? First is it's a good exercise in humility, isn't it? In a couple of different respects. First, in that there's earnest disagreement among godly men. Been reading some historical background on the Westminster Confession of Faith and seeing that there was earnest disagreement among the ranks of these godly men when God's providence came to a consensus, or at least the ability to create a consensus document, and yet still maintained that they saw things differently as God prompted them. That's humbling for us. The second is that if this day of trouble really came upon us, it would be dreadfully difficult to know how to act. Can you feel that? To simplistically sort of reel off, oh yeah, I should have did this, should have did that, is actually an iteration of folly. Because to be in the midst of a difficult circumstance and earnestly try to do good is remarkably different from simplistically being like, oh, yeah, that's easy. Just do it that way. We can feel our own weakness in the light of such a dreadfully difficult situation. May the Lord grant grace and mercy should such a season arise. Doubtlessly, we would stumble through it. Doubtlessly. And again, we can be reminded of the excellencies of Christ's righteousness, who acted blamelessly, indeed, in the perfection of holiness in the most difficult and dreadful of circumstances. They weren't easy circumstances. They were incredibly hard 
and yet he did well. Blameless in everything that he, that's incredible. That it wasn't through the green pastures. It was through the furnace that he loved perfectly. That's astonishing, beloved. That is a thick righteousness. That is a worthy king. Feel his excellencies. Feel our weakness. Seek his mercy. It's also humbling that the Lord has kept us from anything even faintly resembling this. That's humbling. God's kindness humbles. Let's reflect upon adversity that has befallen God's people in other seasons and reflect upon the quiet waters, by and large, which have adorned our days. There have been individual difficulties, no doubt, but certainly nothing like this. We can give thanks for that. We can mark God's kindness in keeping us from such dire circumstances. And we can also grow in humility because the sad fact remains is that we've resorted to deception in far less dire circumstances than this. We've told lies not to save the lives of others, but to make ourselves look better. We've deceived not out of love, but out of a dislike for inconvenience, beloved. Mark how easy a relationship we have with falsehood. And be humbled. Repent of that all too easy relationship that we have with lies. Earnestly seek to be taught from the one who is full of grace and truth. Who delights to teach. That's what he says. He says, come to me. Learn from me. He doesn't turn away those who are in need of learning. A physician doesn't turn away sick. An excellent teacher doesn't turn away an earnest student. Acknowledge, repent, seek, and marvel. And it's not just that he spoke the truth. He is the truth. I don't say that in any flippant way. I mean, you could take just that and spend the rest of your Christian life in rich meditation. Christ says, I am the truth. And it is the truth and the truth alone which sets you free. Sit at his feet, beloved. Marvel that he is our portion, our king, our God. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for the gift of your word, light and lamp to our feet. Thank you for the gift of your son, the one who is the truth, who sets us free in the truth of his gospel, who deals with us in truth, Lord, oftentimes telling us things that are hard to hear, but doing so in a way that is adorned with goodness. Oftentimes, Father, helping us to see, to see the sin, Lord, which the truth of your word exposes, but to drive us into a richer and fuller appreciation of the truth of your grace and mercy. Continue to sustain us in this, O Lord, for we ask in Christ's name, amen.